Hi, my name is Paul Crandall, and I'm the lead pastor here at Sunrise Church. Our vision is to lead you into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, which means our hope is that you would take one step closer to Jesus after watching this service. Whether that step is from interest to curiosity or from one level of commitment to a deeper level of commitment, whatever that is, we want to respect the pace of your spiritual journey and we want to help in making that next step. In fact, personally, I want to help as well. You can email me after the service at paulc.isunrise.com. That's my personal account and I would love to know how I can help you take one step closer to Jesus. I believe after watching the service, you're going to find that our church is a safe place to hear a life-changing message. So please enjoy the content you're about to view and email us so we know how we can help you take your next step closer to Jesus. As we're going through our series, as we're walking through the writings of Luke, we're talking about money. And I think I've said this before, but I'll say it again. I'm not a big fan of how money and ministry are connected. I'm not. Like as a pastor, probably my least favorite topic to talk about is money and and finances. And, And I know probably as a hearer too, you're like, you know what? Not my favorite subject. Like maybe you're like, you know, I've been attending church for a while. When I think about bringing my friend to church and really kind of seeing them being introduced to the things of Jesus. Like if you laid out a calendar for me, Pastor Paul, and I knew that this month would be money, I'm not inviting him to that Sunday. Right? It's probably true because you hear, and I've heard it too. I've heard it from people that when I invite them to church, like I've heard them say, you know what? You know, churches, they just want your money. And I'm like, oh. And then you like, they finally say yes. And you get them, you're next to them, and the whole time you're thinking, don't do money, don't do money, don't do money. And they're like, we have a series on money. You're like, ah, oh, thank you, Pastor Paul. We're leaving now, right? It's not fun. Like the, the connection between ministry and money is not fun. Now, let me show you that the Apostle Paul, he felt that tension too. Let's just jump right into the scriptures. I want to show you this in the Apostle Paul his ministry. Now I know you're wondering, wait, is the Apostle Paul, Paul, was he named after you? No, that chronology, they wouldn't, no, okay, time travel's not real, okay, I don't care what Marvel tells you, okay, it's not real, it's, I'm not going to say it's impossible because I could be wrong in the future, although would I have come back to tell myself? Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 11, skip the time travel stuff. I want you to see and feel this tension. Even the Apostle Paul felt it as he's ministering to the church in Corinth. Look at this, what he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 11. He says, We have sown spiritual things among you. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much we reap material things from you? What is he saying here? What he's saying here, when it comes to the ministry that we do, we are sowing spiritual things. And so is it inappropriate for our livelihood to be supported? And he's saying, no, it's not. It's not inappropriate for that to happen. The more we can focus on ministering to you and not holding down a profession, it allows us to do more ministry. This becomes our profession. Okay, look at how he continues to describe this. Verse 12. If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we 
even more. Notice how he frames it. He's saying this is a rightful claim. This isn't appropriate. This isn't wrong. I can do this. I can ask this of you. Now, notice what he says next. This is when we start to feel a little bit of the tension he feels. Halfway through verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. Because we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is he showing to us here? He's saying, you know what? Sometimes when it comes to financial support, that becomes an obstacle to the message of Jesus Christ. And I don't want that. That's what Paul's saying. Now, we can remove hurdles from the gospel. There are certain hurdles or obstacles we can't remove. Like we can't, we can never remove the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. That would be removing the gospel. We can't remove the Trinity. We can't remove the response to the gospel as faith and repentance. You can't remove that. Then you'd be dishonest. But there are a lot of things you can remove. You can remove archaic language. You can remove stylistic preferences. You can remove uh, uh, styles of worship or music. Dun, dun, dun. That's always like the battle in church. Don't touch my music. Like, like as if Jesus wrote all the songs that we're singing. That's not how, that's not how it works. Oh, I mean, there's a lot of things that we could just move out of the way. And so Paul is saying, I have this claim I could make on you. But it, it's creating an obstacle and it's creating a hindrance. So you know what? That's fine. I'll remove this. I won't make use of this Right, I'm going to disconnect these things because I don't want asking for financial support to get in the way of the gospel going to you. Now, we do know that the Apostle Paul did have a trade. He was bivocational, if you will. We also see in other of his letters that he did receive financial support from churches. So what he's saying here is, I have this right, but right now, Corinth, I'm not going to make use of this. Because I don't want to get in the way of the gospel. So you see how Paul kind of feels this tension? He too, like me, feels... Uncomfortable about how ministry and money are connected sometimes. Now look how he goes back. He says, we didn't make use of this, but it's still appropriate. Look at verse 13. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service, so he's going to the Old Testament uh, service, get their food from the temple. And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord, this would be reference to Jesus Christ, The Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So even though he retreated from this right, then what does he do? He grounds this right in this is like the Old Testament practice. That the priest and the temple ministry was supported by the people of Israel. God would give his people money and resources. They would tithe, give a tenth, and they would also give other offerings and actually other tithes as well. And that giving supported the ministry of the temple. And so those priests didn't have to have another job. They could get their livelihood from the gifts and the offerings of the people. They supported ministry. Paul says here, this is the same thing that Jesus Christ was saying. When he says the Lord commands, he's saying Jesus said we should adopt a similar principle. We want the gospel to go out. We want ministry to move forward. So there are certain people we need to support so they can aggressively move kingdom lines ahead. So do you see that kind of tension that he's kind of working with here? He doesn't feel comfortable with it, but he knows it's all right. If he has in some exceptions, he'll remove that obstacle, but he believes in supporting ministry. So what do we learn right here? What we learn right up front is we cannot disconnect the two. They are connected. 
Jesus connected him. Paul connected him. And we also see there's also a vertical dynamic to this. Right? It's not just we give to support ministry. Like in the Old Testament, they gave to support the priests. In the New Testament, we give to support pastors and missionaries and other uh, ministry leaders. It's not just a horizontal dynamic. Giving and being generous also has a vertical dynamic. Like in the Old Testament, when God's telling his people, you have not provided for my temple. You have not provided for my priests. This is what he says. You are robbing me. You see that vertical dynamic? He's like, it's not just that you're not giving to support ministry. You're not giving because you're not worshiping me. You're taking something from me. That's pretty significant there, right? There's an offense here. There's a horizontal offense and a vertical offense. Paul would say before our passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, that when we don't support what we're doing, and this is the term he uses, we muzzle the gospel. It's like we put something in the way to hinder the advancement of the ministry and proclamation of Jesus Christ as the one who defeated sin and death. We muzzle it by our lack of financial support. So we find ourselves where? We can't disconnect the two. Would it be comfortable to do that? Absolutely. Would it be correct to do that? No. Ministry and money are together. And in fact, ministry is not just about supporting ministry. It's about worship. Our relationship to the Lord. Which brings me to the big idea for today. So we write down one thing. I want you to write this down. Jesus wants your worship before your wallet. Okay, now the structure here is very important. I didn't say Jesus wants your worship and not your wallet. Jesus does want your wallet. <gasps> How dare you? He doesn't want my Apple Pay though. Like it doesn't work like that. No. Now, what do I mean by that? When I say Jesus wants your wallet, here's what I mean. What I mean is Jesus wants you to acknowledge that he has provided for you financially. And he wants you to steward the resources that he, he, he has entrusted to you well. That's what he wants. But before that, what he wants is your worship. He wants your heart. Your heart is connected to your wallet. But first and foremost, what he wants is your worship. And we're going to see somebody get these things out of order. And this is the important thing. Jesus does want your wallet, but first and foremost, he wants your worship. We can't get those out of order. Because when we get them out of order, we can use our wallet to mask our bad religion. We can use our wallet to mask our bad worship. And we're going to see an example of that. Where somebody gives, but what they're masking is their bad religion. In fact, they're worshipers of self and not of God. God first wants our worship. So go to Luke chapter 19. Here's what we're going to find. We're going to run into a rich man who worships and then opens his wallet. Last week we kind of ended on somewhat of a depressing note that a rich man had an encounter with Jesus. And that rich man was left out of the kingdom of God. At least at that moment. Maybe he changed. I don't know. We're not given that account. What we see is a rich man worship himself and worship his wealth so much that it kept him from the kingdom of God. It kept him from eternal life. He worshipped his wealth and that ruined his chance of worshipping Jesus. Here we're going to see a rich man worship Jesus. And that's when his wallet opens. See, that order is important. It's almost like this. It's like if you give your wallet before your worship, it's like planning a wedding before you fall in love. Right? Who goes, hey, I want to spend a ton of money on one day in doilies. I don't know if you had doilies in your wedding or whatever. Like, that's what I want to do. 
just a dress that I'm only going to wear once. I'm going to say I'm going to get back into, but, ooh, like you're like pastor too far. Man, I don't know, right? Right? But like you spend all this money. Now, now it, none of that makes sense until you fall in love. You fall in love, you're like, yeah, we're buying the dress. We're getting the doilies. Double the doilies. You just go doily crazy. Or you get the venue doilies. Why? Because you're celebrating love and affection. See, until you fall in love with Jesus, you're not going to follow his financial advice. Because really his financial advice is not going to make sense unless you're in love with him. you got to give him your worship first. So let, let's see this. Luke chapter 19, starting with verse 1. says this. He, being Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Okay, so some significant things that are happening already. He, we're in the town of Jericho. So Jericho is an important city. It's a significant city, kind of a stop on a trade route from Jerusalem to the east. Okay, so this was a city with wealth. Commerce was going through this city. It wasn't like way out on the outskirts or something like that. This was a good hub for business. And at this hub, there was a man named Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector. He wasn't just a tax collector, he was a chief tax collector, which means he was probably at the top of the taxation org chart in, this, in the city of Jericho. Now, a tax collector at that time, the way they made their money is they would get the taxes, collect the taxes for the Roman Empire, a vast empire at the time. And when you have that amount of land for you to cover and you're trying to tax your people, you need some middlemen. That's what you need. That's what Zacchaeus is. And in order for Zacchaeus to make money, he had to ask for more than Rome asked. So what these men were known as is they were known as corrupt individuals who had significant personal gains come to them because they would ask for more from the people. So we have a chief tax collector at the top of this kind of racket, not like our taxation system. Oh, you gave yourself away. No, I, I, that, was like, that was a leading one right there. How did they respond? Thank you. Now we're going to lose our nonprofit status, okay? Hopefully nobody's watching this video. Okay, he was a chief tax collector and was rich. So he's made his money by his corrupt behavior. And this is going to come out even more that he has kind of notoriety for being evil, for defrauding people, from taking money from people. That's who we're running into right now. Okay, let's jump down. Verse 3. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. Now, maybe you've run through this story before and you're like, oh, I know this. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And a wee little man was he. He climbed a sycamore tree to see what he could see. Don't you love how we just like juvenilize, if that's even a word, right? We just kind of make this all nice. He's just a small guy. That's the problem. That's actually not the problem. It's okay that he's small. Small people unite. Yes. Right? It's okay. I got it. Yeah. It's a, it's, the problem is not his stature. That's not really the problem. Because if he was liked, people would have moved. They would have moved. Like if he was this nice, generous man, always giving, taking care of widows and orphans, helping people out. If Zacchaeus then met the crowd and he goes up, hey, hey, Joe, can you help me out? Oh, yeah, hey, Zacchaeus, come on, front row. That's not what's happening here. Zacchaeus is back there. They're like, nope. Why? Don't let him in. 
can I get on your shoulders? Nope. Because they know who this guy is. They've, they've been defrauded by him. Right? They, they've, they've been victims of his greed. The problem is he's unpopular. Not that he's short. That's not the problem. If he was liked and short, they would have moved. But they didn't. See, we see this kind of growing reputation. We're going to get more as the story unfolds. But this guy is not popular. Probably not popular because of his corrupt taxation practices that have taken and abused people and taken money from them inappropriately. But he's got to see. right? Zacchaeus has to see. So what does he do? Climbs up the sycamore tree. Just like the song says. Verse 4. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass by. Now this very dignified man does a very undignified thing. He's at least an adult. We know he's a tax collector, so he has a profession. He's a chief tax collector, which probably means he's moved up kind of the bureaucratic ladder a little bit. So maybe middle age, something like that. And now he's climbing a tree. Now I don't know about you, but I used to love to climb trees as a kid. I don't climb trees now. You know why? Because I've fallen. And you know what you don't do when you're an adult? You don't bounce anymore. You break. You hit the ground and you're like, crack. And you're like, I don't even know there was a bone there. Like, what was that, right? Like, stuff happens. You start to hurt yourself. Like, this is not good. This man is climbing up this tree doing something very undignified. Somebody of his stature would not do that. And I think what this shows us is he's not just curious, he's hungry. Whatever he has heard about Jesus, he has got to meet this guy. Like his curiosity will only be satisfied if he encounters Jesus Christ. We don't know what he's heard. I think he's actually heard a significant amount. And we'll see that as the story goes on. Because the way he talks shows he knows a lot more than, than what we are, are told by Luke. There's a significant amount of material that he's kind of working through this guy, Jesus, and, and who he is and his reputation. So he climbs up this tree, and he's trying to time it just right. Now, I don't know how he did this. Can you imagine, like, Zacchaeus getting to the top as an older man? And then as he's coming, Jesus is like, turn left. And he's like, ah, bummer. So Zacchaeus, not only a tax collector, great navigator. He anticipates where Jesus is going, right? He throws open the receiver, just like Tua. See, I got to give my man props, dude. Always wearing the dolphin stuff, and they're doing so great. I'm cursing them now, now that they're in the sermon. So I'm sorry they're going to lose. Okay, let's jump back on board and get off the NFL, okay? All right, I need you guys to focus. So he hurried and he... <laughs> Verse 5, and when Jesus came to this place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house. Okay, it's already peculiar that we have this dignified man climbing a tree, and now we have Jesus demanding hospitality. Right? Isn't that weird? He doesn't ask Zacchaeus. There's no question mark at the end of that. He's not like, hey man, you free? You want to hang out? Jesus says, you, me, this must happen. That's kind of weird. Like imagine you're out walking the dog, you know, strolling through your neighborhood. And this kind of shady character in Miami Dolphins uniform <laughs> comes up to you and is like, hey, i got to come to your house today. What are you going to do? Pepper spray. Psh, like that's, that's what the little guys do. Zacchaeus had pepper spray. I carry pepper spray. If you come at me and want to come to my house, it's just over. Okay? Why, why is Jesus pushing so hard to have this guy have a conversation with him? 
See, I, I think there's something here too. Not only is Zacchaeus so curious that he feels like he's got to meet with Jesus, I think Jesus has got to meet with Zacchaeus. Jesus is on a mission. And this appointment needs to happen. Jesus' mission will be fulfilled. Zacchaeus' curiosity won't be satisfied until they meet each other. Now look at how the crowd responds. Like the crowd who wouldn't let Zacchaeus in. Who knew who he was. They wouldn't budge. Now Jesus is asking for a meal with him. They won't give Zacchaeus an inch. And Jesus wants to have a meal with him. Pretty remarkable. Look at how the crowd responds to this. Verse 7. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. Now this, is, this word happens a lot. And we see this response a lot. And majority of the time what happens is Jesus is hanging out with the wrong people. And people just start to grumble. That's what grumble means to me. That's, they just start to do that. Jesus starts to hang out with people who are unpopular. It's not appropriate who Jesus is associating with. So people grumble about this. They don't like this. Look what they say. They grumble. You could tell I do a lot of family devotions. It's what keeps my kids interested. I figured it would work on you too. Apparently not. He has gone into or gone into be guest of a man who is a sinner. See, here's where we get the reputation. The crowd knows who this guy is. They know who Zacchaeus is. They know, hey, this is the guy who, who taxed my mother-in-law so much that she lost her house. And now she's living with me, which is even worse. <laughs> oh, come on, man. That one hits really good. Mother-in-law jokes, you guys got to wake up, man. Okay? Like, so they know, like, you've hurt our family. We've seen your mansion grow. We see how you dress yourself. We know who you are. You're a sinner. So they're just expressing their very low view of Zacchaeus. But what are they also doing? They're expressing a very low view of who? Jesus. Because Jesus should not be associated with this man. This religious teacher and rabbi who's all about righteousness, he should not be hanging out with this guy. So in the backdrop of a low view of Zacchaeus and a low view of Jesus, we see a total turn in the next kind of stage of the narrative. Because what's going to happen is Zacchaeus is going to show a high view of Jesus. And Jesus is going to show a high view of Zacchaeus. Okay, let's look at that. So the crowd grumbles. In the backdrop of that grumbling, look at verse 8. This is where we see the worship. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord. Okay, this is so Incredibly significant and surprising. Right? Notice how Luke, right, the first part of verse 8, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord. That is Luke's narration of this event. So this isn't necessarily a part of the event. He is describing this story to us, and he's moving the discussion along. And as he intros this phrase, he sets it up in a very odd way. He doesn't refer to Jesus by name. He gives Jesus a title. In verse 5, he said, Jesus. Now in verse 8, he uses the title, Lord. Why is that significant? It's significant because Luke is writing his gospel from a post 
resurrection experience and perspective. So he knows Jesus Christ as the resurrected one, the one who ascended to the Father. He knows him as the victor over sin and death, the one who died, who saved us, and sits now as king. So when he uses the term Lord, it's loaded with you are the son of God, the resurrected one. Now why does he use that title? I think he uses it because of what Zacchaeus said. He says, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord. He uses the same term. Why? Here's why I think he's doing that. I think Luke is doing that because what Luke knows, he believes Zacchaeus knew. What he knows as Jesus, as the crucified and risen Messiah, the Son of God, he says, this is what Zacchaeus is doing here. He's not just being polite. He's not calling Jesus sir. This is a moment of worship. Lord, this is incredible. And that is the moment of worship. And then what happens? Then he opens his wallet. But not the other way around. That's very important for us to understand. In fact, go down in your Bible. I want you to maybe turn a page if you have to. Go to Luke chapter 18. We've seen this story before. We've used this before. And I think it's important because we want to see how Luke is gathering together this material. Right? Luke is an editor. He's bringing stories of Jesus' life together. And he's an inspired editor. So he's recording historical events, but he's arranging them in ways to prove a point. That's why he used that term Lord and then records Zacchaeus calling Jesus Lord. We're seeing the intention of the editor. Well, in this kind of gathering of material, as we're talking about especially the wealthy and the rich and how to steward our money, Jesus tells a story and Luke includes that story in this interaction with the rich young ruler and then Zacchaeus. Two wealthy people, he tells this story. And last week we talked about one of the characters in that story, the tax collector. This time, we're going to look at the Pharisee. Okay, let's go. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Think of the interaction happening with Jesus and Zacchaeus. Jesus tells a story, verse 9. And he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, that's the one we're focusing on, and the other a tax collector, like Zacchaeus. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, uh, sorry, unjust adulterers, and even like this tax collector. This Pharisee is essentially saying who Zacchaeus is. Who is Zacchaeus? He is an extortioner. He is a tax collector. He is corrupt. And this Pharisee is saying, I'm better than that guy. What reverent prayers of worship. Look at how he talks about his wallet here, verse 12. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I open my wallet. I'm good, right? No. No, you're not. Because Jesus wants your worship before your wallet. This guy got it reversed. And look how Jesus shows how this man is not right with God. Verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. What does that mean? He's saying this, that guy didn't make it. 
the one who gave his wallet and not his worship, he didn't make it. He is not right with God. He is not righteous. He is not justified. He is losing out. Do you see the opposite there? Zacchaeus, on the other hand, gives his worship. He confesses Jesus as Lord. And then he opens his wallet. This man never confessed Christ as Lord, never truly worshiped, was only giving his wallet, and that was it. He let his generosity mask his idolatry. He truly worshiped himself. That's money you can keep. That's money you can keep. You don't, don't give that money to us. We don't want that. We're not about that. And it's dangerous for you to give it. Right? If, if you give to the church, if you give to the church out of that kind of heart, we don't want it. It's dangerous for you to give it. To mask idolatry with generosity is a dangerous place to be. And what I'd rather you be is honest and give your heart over to the Lord first. Jesus wants your worship before your wallet. But when he gets your worship, guess what else he gets? Your wallet. Right? Let me show you this. Go back to Luke chapter 19. Look at how remarkable this man's generosity is. So he confesses Jesus as Lord. And he says this. Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything... I restore it fourfold. Now, I'm not a super fan of how this is translated into the English, okay? And the reason is it's because, I don't know what you call this, I kind of like to call this a sterile translation, okay? There are things that are communicated, and as you write them in the Greek, right, we, all, we all know this, right? If you're, especially if you uh, come from a different uh, language, right? you know as you're learning English, right? Say English isn't your first language, you know, we often use this phrase, translation is treason, Meaning there are certain ideas and, and things you're trying to convey that they just don't translate over. Like you ever found that where you're trying to like uh, talk to somebody and you have like a friend who's an interpreter. And you're saying something and your friend looks at you like, ah, that really doesn't go over. Or your friend tries to say something back to you, right? And your friend's like, I don't know how to say this in English. Right? And there's kind of that struggle. This is kind of one of those moments where, I, I, yes, it's a translation of what's happening in the Greek. But I don't think it's presented right in the English because it conveys an idea that I don't think is accurate. Here's what I mean by that. This almost sounds like Zacchaeus is saying, this is what I normally do. Right? Behold, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. It almost sounds like he's saying, Jesus, vindicate me. Right? Like, I already do these great things. I don't know why I'm so unpopular. Right? If I defraud, I restore it fourfold. I give away half of my stuff to the poor. If that was true, I bet the crowd would have made a way for that guy to see Jesus. Like if he was living that kind of life, then I think he wouldn't be unpopular. Nobody would call that kind of man a sinner. Here's what I think is being conveyed here. Yes, it's in the present tense, not because it's a practice of what he's been doing, but because it's expressing his immediate obedience to Jesus. He's committing to these things today. Like, in this hour, Jesus, this is what I'm going to do. And I think Jesus gives us the primary indicator. This is the proper way to translate these kind of verbs. Because look at what Jesus says in the next verse, verse 9. And Jesus said to him, today, today salvation has come to this house. Jesus is remarking on something that has happened in that 
moment. Today, something has happened to you, Zacchaeus. Okay, now let's just go back to his generosity. So go back to verse 8. Let's just unpack kind of what's happening here. It says here, behold, Lord, half of my goods. Now, what does this mean? This doesn't mean income. This means possessions. So what he's saying is, half of my net worth I'm now giving to the poor. What would that mean for you? Think of half of your net worth. Now, you may think to yourself, I'm not worth much, right? That's what my wife says. Ooh, okay, maybe that was, that was a hard dig. Okay, that one was not as funny. Darn it. Okay, I'll go back to the mother-in-law jokes. Those are more comfortable for people. Okay, right? Half of my stuff, imagine what that would mean. Like, I mean, you got to sell your car, you got to sell your boat, you got to, like, sell your house, your season tickets to the Miami Dolphins. Like, you just got to give away everything. Then you got to half that and give it to the poor. What does this show us? This dude was a bad dude. Right, clearly he has misused the resources that God has given him. This is an admission to guilt. I have not stewarded my finances well. But Jesus, now that you're Lord, I see, i got to liquidate my assets. i got to sell the mansion on the hill. Half my stuff has got to go to the poor. And then he says, on top of that, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it four fold. Now, if you steal from somebody, you rob somebody, you defraud them, in the Old Testament, the requirement was this. You had to pay everything back 100%, and then you had to add 20% on top of that. That was it. What Zacchaeus is talking about here is 400% of the original value. That's what I got to give back. That's ridiculous. Like, this is a great way to go bankrupt. But who has his heart? Jesus has his heart. And his heart is connected to his wallet. So when he opens up his heart to Jesus and he worships, that's what happens. Be careful if you're worried about your net worth. Worshiping Jesus could ruin that. It could. It sets a whole new level of priorities in your life. Jesus gets this man's worship and then he gets his wallet. And that, that's what Jesus was after the whole time. Right? Look at how, it, how this closes out, how Luke closes this out. I love this. So we're in verse 9. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Oh, this is, there's so much meaning just packed into this response that Jesus gives to his, to his conversation partner here, Zacchaeus. First he says today, salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. I don't think what he's saying is Jesus just is acknowledging his uh, uh, biology, his like, his like heritage, right? It's like some 23 and me, like he did this swap and he's like, hey, you're Jewish, by the way. I don't think that's what's happening here. I think what he's saying is you are like Abraham. You are after Abraham. Paul uses this later in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 4, he uses as a model of faith that Abraham was the true father of faith. He believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. We are made right by faith. And what he's saying here is Jesus is looking at him. He's like, man, I remember when Abraham looked up and believed. That's what made him righteous. And what Jesus sees in Zacchaeus is what he saw in Abraham. You worship me, you're right with me, you believe in me, you trust in me. Salvation has come to you. You're just like Abraham. That's what's being said. 
And then Jesus says, I've come. Son of man, that's Jesus' favorite title for himself. The son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Now notice this. Again, this shows us that Jesus wants worship before our wallet. Notice how Jesus didn't come into the town of Jericho like this like lone ranger vindicator. Right, he comes in, the sun's rising. You still see the dust of the trail from his horse as he rode into the city of Jericho. He meets this man, Zacchaeus, and he's just mean. He's got like a skull tattoo. He's got money coming out of his pockets. He's pushing over widows and kicking orphans. He's just this mean. Nobody's getting this, okay. It's like this is mean. I'm trying to like build this theatrical trailer, like Zacchaeus kicking orphans. No, right? More, please? No. Right? Like this, this man who's defrauded this city. He's the chief abuser of people. That's who this man is. Why doesn't Jesus roll in and go after this guy? Why does Jesus go in and, and speak for those who've been defrauded? Have you noticed that? He doesn't walk in and be like, Zacchaeus, you got to make this right. You got to return fourfold. You got to give away half your stuff. It's because Jesus is not on a mission to get everybody's money back. What's Jesus' mission? To seek and to save the lost. And what's lost? Zacchaeus is lost. God has not lost money, He's lost us. And Jesus' mission. Is, is not to reconcile accounts. His mission is to get us back. That's his mission. Jesus is after our worship. Not our wallets. Those will come later. It's wild how the crowd saw a sinner. And Jesus saw somebody lost. It's wild that the crowd saw, saw somebody who wasn't even worth a kind gesture, a courteous gesture to move out of the way so they could see. And Jesus saw, saw the same things that they saw, but he saw something else. He saw something valuable. When you lose something that's not valuable, do you look for it? No, you're like, ah, whatever. When you lose something of value, what do you do? You look for it. You start flipping over cushions, interrogating the kids. Did you play with my wedding ring? Where is it? Is it in your mouth? How long do I have to wait? Right? You do those things. When you lose something of value, you look for it until you find it. It's exactly what Jesus is doing. He is after your worship. He's after you. He's not wringing his hands thinking, oh, my accounts are in the red. I just need your money. No, he wants you. And when he gets your worship, when he rescues you, when you fall in love with him and you see him as Lord, you see him as the one who has taken on your guilt and your shame, all the infractions you have against your divine benevolent creator, every sin you've done with your hands or your heart or your mind, when, he's, when you realize that he's taken on all those things, that Christ suffered the penalty for those sins, rose again and now extends to you a victory that you can have, not by merit, but by simply believing in him as the resurrected one. When you get to that point of worship, then you say to Jesus, let's plan the wedding. 
right? Let's do this. I've fallen in love with you. Now I'm following you. And that's when you open up the wallet. But first he's after your worship. And then he gets your wallet. Now we've talked about we, practically how can we work this out. And I told you last week about an idea we came up as a, with a, as a pastoral team. We always felt like we don't just want to inform with our messages, right? We, we want to transform with our messages. We want there to be action, right? Not just leave this room. Well, I was inspired and, and I, I got a big idea for a moment. Now I can tweet something and then I'll just forget about it. That's not what we're about. We're about practical steps of obedience. And so we invited you to consider a giving challenge. And so I want to invite you to this. Now hear me. This is not, don't take this as a guilt thing. It is not about guilt. It is not about shame. It is not about that. What it's about is this. And I know I have felt that. As we've walked through this money series, I have felt convicted. I have felt convicted personally that I hold on to my money too tightly. I talked about this last week, right? I have the sin of a saver. I hold it so tight. It's good to save. It's true. But you could have such a saver mentality that you find comfort in your cash and not in Christ. And you can lean on that too much and be greedy in a different way. Greedy to hoard and to not be generous. And I found that in my own heart. Now we give as a family. We are generous to the mission of the church. Absolutely. But I know in my own heart, I was not encouraged by what I saw in my heart. I hold my money too tightly. So we invited you to step into a challenge. And I'm inviting you to step into the same challenge that I'm stepping into. And this challenge, maybe it's just for Paul Crennel. That's okay. If we have one person taking that challenge, that's fine with me. I'm good with that. We've talked about a 90-day giving challenge. You see that there's a card uh, on the seat. Maybe there was one right next to you. But we're doing a 90-day giving challenge, and this is what the challenge is. The challenge is to give 2% more of our income for the next 90 days. 2% more of our income to the church for 90 days. Now, what we love about this is this, this could be applied to everybody. I, I had a couple come up to me and say, hey, I want to know about how we can start supporting the church. We're not currently giving right now. This is a great opportunity. Start with 2%. Baby step. Baby step your way. This is a great way to get into a practice of being generous. Because what happens is when God saves you, he then enlists you. Right? When you get his free grace of salvation, he then says, join this mission with me. And I want to enlist you in financially supporting the gospel advancing. And so what we're asking you to do is to consider giving 2% more of your income for 90 days. And if at the end of 90 days... You feel like God has not honored his promise to take care of you. We will give you your money back. So we're taking the risk out of it for you. Now, if you sign up for this, this is what we're going to do. We're going to give you a gift. We have a book that we want to give to you and a study guide that goes along with that. So the next 90 days, we don't want you to just feel like, oh, they're just after my money. We're not hurting. Don't, this is not a ploy to get more money from you because the church is hurting and we can't pay the bills. No, we're, we're good financially. This is not about that. It's not a money grab. It's a worship grab. And I know in my heart, like, God, need, God, I need to give this. And so I'm inviting you to consider do the same thing. And I hope that's what you've done over this last week is to pray about that. Super easy to get started. So let me go through some practical things. If you go to our website or you scan the QR code that's on this card, you're going to see this front page here. And you're going to see a wonderful picture of our church. And the top right, there's giving. You click on that. There will be another thing that will come up and it will show you kind of where you can give. So the next page you're going to see is this page. 
Now, you see that big red thing on there? This is important. Okay, so let me just go through some administrative details here. You see that we are moving our giving platform January 1. So not yet. Don't freak out like, oh, they're changing things. I already give automatically online. That's fine. Just know January 1, we're changing things. Now, why? Because it's going to save us thousands of dollars a month. We have a better platform, safe, secure, but it costs less. And so we're taking that because when we save money, guess what we get to do with it? We get to take that and put it into doing ministry. So we just want you to know that you're going to hear a lot more communication about that. So don't worry, but I want to tell you up front what that red box is kind of telling you. You click on that where it says give online. So you start this. It's going to give us a form. So go to the next slide. The reason why we want kind of this form here is because we want your address so we can give you that book. And we give you access to that study. And walk through that with you for 90 days. Again, consider that. Consider that and see if that's a challenge you want to jump into. Do not feel any guilt about that. If you're like, Paul, that's not for me. That's cool. I know it's for me. And I'm just inviting you to walk this journey with me. Now, maybe you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus. I want to bring something out to you in the story of Zacchaeus that I think is really important. When we read the story of Zacchaeus, we think, oh, look, a guy seeking Jesus. But then Jesus says at the very end that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. Notice that. Like you're here and you're thinking, Paul, I drove in the parking lot. I shook your hand out there. I found my seat. I'm in the driver's seat here, man. I'm doing this thing. I'm seeking Jesus out. That's true. Like Zacchaeus climbing the tree, that's what you're doing. But there's another side to this, a side that maybe you don't see. It's hidden from your vision and your view. There's a spiritual drawing that God is doing in your life. You're not here by accident because Jesus is seeking after you. That's why when he goes to Zacchaeus, he says, we must meet. That's my mission and that's your curiosity. And I invite that for you to think about that. You're not here by accident. Jesus is seeking you out. Meet with him. Continue to be here and let God show up in your life with great clarity and compassion. He wants to meet with you because you are valuable to him. Yes, are you lost? Yeah, we all were, just like Zacchaeus. But he is seeking you out because you are of great value to him. Church family, let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. So Father, we want to give you our worship, give you our praise. That's what you want. That's what you want from us. You first want our hearts. So I pray, Father, that we not take this challenge as an opportunity to show ourselves as self-righteous. But this would be a response to worship. We, we would look and say, I've, I've received so much. I want to join the mission of Jesus Christ and financially support the gospel going to the nations. I want to be a part of life transformation. That's what I want to fund. That's what I want to support. Oh, all the things we pay for that support our habits or, or that are good. But what greater habit, what greater good is there than the proclamation of the gospel to the nations? There's none greater. Oh, Father, may we worship you and take the invitation to be enlisted into your mission. To give of ourselves, to give of our finances, to give of our time to the most important mission, to the most important project we could do as people. It's in Christ's name I pray.
Amen.